And we're back. Welcome to the Ask Me podcast. We've had a busy few weeks on the channel, traveling far and wide to some interesting businesses from surf lakes to sustainable office hubs over in Bristol. But today we find ourselves back in the city of London with our partners and friends from ISG. We're going to explore ISG's new low carbon retrofit business unit, the kind of projects they're getting involved in, what their current challenges are, as well as opening up discussions around the sustainability agenda from a main contractor's perspective. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Mike, Brad, Paul from ISG, and of course, Chris Newman, our zero carbon design manager. Gents, welcome. Mike, if you don't mind, let's start with yourself. Give our listeners a flavor of your role, what you get up to, what does a week look like from your perspective? Yeah, so thanks, Dan. Um, Mike Lenehan, um, Divisional Director of Low Carbon Retrofit, uh, working with Paul on Brad. Uh, really excited to be uh, building up this new venture within, within ISG, uh, primarily focused to repurposing existing building stock, mm-hmm. non-domestic. Uh, we've got real passion for making buildings perform better, staying with the buildings. And we've got a great team of building performance engineers, building physics engineers. It's a really new, exciting offer. So we're trying to help and support clients through their kind of retrofit programs on the short, medium, and the long term to meet their kind of long-term aspirations on performance, legislation, and ideally to get to net zero quickly. Awesome. Sound like a busy man, Mike. And some interesting job titles, a building physician. Was that the right word? That's, I, I think can't even so, say it was yeah. a mouthful, but yeah, interesting. Look forward to pulling on some of those threads. Um, Paul, same question for yourself, please. Yeah, hi, I'm Paul Sullivan, um, Divisional Commercial Director for Low Carbon Retrofit. Um, I'm a Chartered Surveyor by background, um, been in the industry 23 years. Um, and yeah, like Mike, uh, it's like the last um, year to 18 months of setting this team up and um, getting moving and understanding the, the you know the, the pathways we can put clients on to make their buildings perform better has been quite eye-opening, but but really exciting and interesting. And um, looking forward to the next few years helping you know more clients do that. Awesome, thanks, Mike. And um, over to you, Brad. If there's anything left left to say, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> hello, everyone. I'm I'm Brad Bennett. Um, I, my role is a senior energy manager. Uh, in this unit, and um, I look after delivery as as well as lead mm-hmm. the investigations, um, which is a lot of what we're doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, leading these investigations for for clients on their buildings, looking at what they've got, and um, advising them really yeah. of what the situation is and and how we can help. Awesome, thanks, gents. And last but not least, Chris, zero carbon design manager. What does that entail? Uh, afternoon, Dan. Um, what does that entail? Uh, it's easy, really. Uh, just everything that these guys have just been talking about, trying to uh, come up with solutions for clients, trying to apply products in an innovative way. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about this in some of the previous podcasts. It's just about trying to do sustainability, doing low carbon practically. How do you actually make it happen? How do we come up with a solution that delivers heat or cooling or ventilation to a building that does it in a low carbon way? Awesome. Easy, really. Yeah, put very succinctly. Let's kick things off then. So really open question to begin with. Uh, feel free to pick it up, any of you. Key drivers and, the, and the, the demand for retrofit, more importantly, in the commercial sector. Mike, I'm sort of looking over your direction here. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And uh, I think that one keeps changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I start off with the easy one, that's probably legislation. Mm-hmm. And obviously people need to have a... Um, a valid EPC certificate mm-hmm. for their space leading up to those compliance windows all the way to 27. So, you know, we've just passed one recently there. Yeah. And I think that's probably the biggest driver for, for, for landlords, building owners to to act and get some retrofit programs done. Um, there, we understand now at the end of this year, there's probably going to be some mandated uh, EPCC yeah. up to 27. So we're looking forward to that. And that's going to drive the market even further. Yeah. Other than that, I, I probably look towards the um, the occupier side. So the, the the pressure they're putting on landlords and owners, uh, I think that's going to drive some action as well. Because uh, now we need to look at the building holistically as as one, and working with FF, FM teams, maintenance teams, landlords, and tenants together. And until or unless that works well, then we're not going to get to net zero net zero properly. So that's a really important space. So I think. Recently, I've seen some of the tenants and occupiers are driving the agenda 
and the and there's mutual benefits for both both landlord and tenant from that point of view. Is there enough legislation in this space? I think you just touched on the fact that you know owners are, are really pushing this from from their perspective. Is there enough? Are we doing enough? When I say us, you know, I'm looking at the, the government here. You talk about you know the EPC rating, and I think you're referring to the ME standard. Um, is there enough legislation in this space? Do you think you know we need to be doing more? No, I definitely think there's there's more that could be done. Um, there's talk around in performance um, disclosure of buildings, and I think until we get to that point. Um, you know, the EPC is quite a crude um, assessment to, yeah. to improve the efficiency of buildings. Um, you really need to demonstrate that you're actually doing it. Yeah. Um, so I think something like that needs to come through. And I know there's there's been discussions and white papers um, and industry consultation on it. Yeah. Um, so we're just waiting for that to, to filter in as well. Um, and I think it's really once we get that, that's when the real transition will start. Yeah. happening. Well, that was 2019, that consultation. Yeah, it's waiting. It's, it's, it's a lifetime yeah. ago. Waiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose following on from that, something to touch on is neighbours. Yeah. And um, hopefully that's something that's going to help us on that journey because it is looking at performance. Mm-hmm. Like, like Paul touched on with EPCs, it can be quite crude that you you, you get this rating. Uh, and also a lot of the time there's, there's, rep- there's a report that you get with the EPC that will give some recommendations on how to improve things. But you get that report and then there isn't anything after in terms of, okay, well, is the building following how it should be working are, are we using for instance the vrf as you guys know about in the right way is mm-hmm. it being controlled in the right way and um i know neighbors recently um the neighbors uk announced the update that brings in uh, tenants in, into it as well because it is complicated um mm-hmm. with regards to how it's all gonna gonna intertwine so um i'm excited to see where neighbors goes or if it's not neighbors then then something else that that we can all use to to assess these buildings or how the people that are using them are, are actually using them right as per the design criteria. And is it mainly offices that you guys are doing most of your work on? Because obviously Neighbours only applies to offices in the UK at the moment. Is that the majority oh, of the retrofit work? We, it's a good question. We we cover all non-domestic buildings. So that covers logistic distribution. It could be hotels. It could be shopping centres, etc. And uh, commercial op- commercial office blocks. And so is it is it just uh, is offices the main um, the no, main bulk of the work? No, um, no, no. I think you know if you look at the, the job ahead of us, it's every building typology that needs to be addressed and the to to get to net zero. Really, it's um, it's huge. But going, going back to the, the legislation side, there. That said, the positive side, you've got local government who are dropping in their own kind of plans and their drivers, and we see, we're seeing that land into some employers' requirements. Uh, we're seeing, as Bradley said, neighbours, and again, that's a great framework for trying to manage operational carbon. So there's a gr- there's a there's an awareness and there's a skill set growing in that particular space. But if we want people to act widespread across the country, we need stronger uh, mandated policy coming from central government. So, Brad, just pulling on your your thread there about providing a retrofit space, an office space, let's say, with the end user and tenants in mind. We don't always necessarily know who's going to take over that space within within the office environment or whatever that building may be. So how do we get to a position where we're delivering a suitable retrofit project with the needs of an end user and a tenant in mind? Well, that's interesting because I think that the challenge in London is that, um, you know, a given building, some of these buildings have got 20 floors. Mm. How many different tenants are in those those buildings? Um do those those tenants that have their own ESG agendas for net zero, mm-hmm. do they marry up? So that actually is a big challenge, particularly yeah. in London. Um, how do we do it? I suppose going back to to Mike's point around um, the legislation, is I think following the guidance on that is is definitely something we look towards. But um, I think with, when you look at the um, the ESG agendas of of a lot of the the companies that we're dealing with and, and the clients. They're very interested in carbon. They're very interested in energy reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the summary to that is there isn't an easy solution. It's yeah. kind of bespoke per building. Um, different tenants, different clients, different landlords have got their own aspirations and agendas. A challenging one, like I say, is these the buildings that maybe have got 20 different tenants in them. I suppose it's it's coming up with a, a kind of a task force. Mm-hmm. I'm, not the word, I'm not sure what the word for it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, a forum where sure. there's stakeholders from everywhere yeah. that can feed into it and try and come up with a common plan, a common design criteria to meet a common target. I mm. suppose that's what needs to happen is a common target. 
comes back to that buzzword whenever I'm having these conversations around the wider sustainability agenda is collaboration, right? It's, you know, as I introduced you guys at the start, it's, it's partners, it's the collaborative built environment. We all need to pull together in order to come up with exactly that, that sort of playbook. And I think, Mike, Chris, you sit on the UK Green Building Council retrofit, what's the exact terminology you're working on together? Is it task, the retrofit task force is yeah, task force. So it's the go, commercial yeah. retrofit task force. Yeah, we're just trying. We're trying to come up with <clears throat> practical, usable um, strategies to help clients come up with a decarbonisation roadmap. Really, you know, where are they going to get big gains? Where should they invest money? You know, how should they even sit down and come up with a plan in the first place as to what they're going to do with a with a given building, with a given asset? Um, do they look at deep retrofit? Do they look at light retrofit measures? Should they just look at actually optimizing what they've already got? Mm. Uh, where can they get some good gains? So that group has got some really, really uh, important people across the industry, some really clever people across the industry who are trying to pool some ideas. And um, hopefully that report will be out around about September, I think it is. Yeah, so uh, keep Great a watch work. out for that. Awesome. Well, I was, I was just going to say, actually, like in terms of that question around like how do we get buildings right at the beginning. Mm. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the time buildings are designed correctly mm -hmm. and then those tenants move in and they use the buildings incorrectly yeah. compared to how they were designed. So having some consistency in a building now, and you know, whether that be, it's definitely collaboration, but whether that be somebody appointed to a building with multiple tenants, helping the, um, helping the occupiers understand what they need to be doing and look like a policeman of the building, mm -hmm. if you like. Um, which might not go down well, but ultimately, if we all want to achieve this end goal, we've got to use buildings right, not only design yeah. them and install them correctly. So it's you know it's a, a piece of the puzzle that needs to be, um, you know, put right where there's not really anything there at the minute to, to yeah, do that. Definitely a backache, that's for sure. Just going all the way back to the start, you know, we mentioned the low carbon retrofit business unit that you've created. When, when you come in to work in the morning, you open your laptop, you fish through your emails. What's the constant message that is a challenge for for you guys? Is it is it data? Is it collaboration with the industry? Is it recycling? You know, what's the constant theme from a main contractor perspective? You know, we, we know from, from a manufacturer's perspective, it's EPDs, it's embodied carbon data, it's efficiency, it's uh, low GWP, GWP refrigerant, that's a mouthful. What is it from, from a main contractor's perspective that's giving you guys a headache? The biggest one is probably trying to sim simplify things. And if, yeah. if we're dealing with customers out there who are looking for support on their short, medium or long term retrofit program for a, for a building, then there's a lot to consider below the different layers from start to finish. And, you know, we, we've talked about the, the tenant side, the, the landlord side, the, the cost, yeah. the technology, the embodied carbon, the whole life carbon. Asset. There's a lot to consider. There's legislation, there's yeah. different guides and um, uh, frameworks out there. So it's, it's actually trying to simplify that yeah. and then putting a, um, a high-level framework in place to bespoke for that particular building and, and then trying to communicate that to, to people. And then once that's kind of done, then we can start to put the put a bit of uh, meat on the bones as to how we're going to deliver that from a from an assessment and a, and a, and a delivery point of view to get those measures and performance at how, the end of it. How knowledgeable are the clients that are coming to you guys? Do they already really understand this space and they just need someone to help work through it? Or are they coming to you saying, we know we need to do something, but we don't really understand what the legislation is going to be, or we don't understand what the best route to take is? How, how is it? Look I think it's mixed. We're, <clears throat> if you look at more mature building owners, um, developers, portfolio owners, they are, they've got um, trajectories all laid out for each one of their assets. Um, however, a lot of them, they haven't actually moved from kind of um, assessment into actual delivery and action, and they're waiting for something to happen. Perhaps that's lease events, there are voids in their, in their buildings. Uh, and then the other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody who just hasn't got knowledge of, of what needs to be done. So where is the carbon? How do I get it out? Why do I need to do it? Um, and there was an example yesterday on the task force where if you look at like a deep retrofit intervention, such as insulation of the fabric, that's not something you're gonna you're gonna see. So people, when they spend money, they like to see new glazing and internal carpet and joinery furniture. That's a really important intervention on the on the on the U value of a building, and it will future proof your building. But 
the value and the money and the investment, it doesn't make sense for some people who have got to make those decisions. So those are some of the challenges that, that are out there. And putting the business case, putting the right business case at the right time in the right format is huge, I think. For, for me, it's kind of one of the, well, I think one of the challenges I've seen um, while I've worked in this space is that we speak to a lot of clients um, and those clients, a lot of them have so many different um, streams of advice coming in around this subject. So they've got net zero audits or they've got um, energy reports or they've got um, uh, you know building surveyors reports, all trying to do the same thing. But so they've got so much information in front of them that trying to get their head around it sometimes, I, I see them struggling and being a bit confused. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the challenges we're trying to overcome with our team is that we take all of that that fuzziness, if you like, mm. and we pull it together in a way that not only looks at it from a design point of view, um, we look at it from a logistical point of view, um, we look at it from a carbon point of view, not just operational, but whole life. We look at it from a cost point of view, and we try to give the client options so that they can make informed decisions about how they how they plan out their net, net zero journey. Because one, the client, you could have two different clients of, in, the, in the same building typology, and one client might want to take a different route to another, and that's fine, but it's about making those informed decisions. I think that's where we're adding the value to our clients is that we're giving them the options um, which they can then you know, rely on us to make sure that they're delivered. Yeah. yeah. And Brad, um, to be honest, I think the guys have, have hit the nail on the head there completely. Um, the one thing I'd, I would like to add is, uh, which I think is, is kind of like the ethos of our service, is, that is we're not just trying to rip things out. We're not just mm. trying to replace things all the time um there's there's benefits to let's assess what's there now is it not being run correctly can it be optimized um is it doing all right you know is it okay at the moment um you know the big thing is is natural gas you want to get rid of natural gas i think the the easiest thing to do is use heat pumps for instance but maybe that's not the right decision right now and it's um yeah can we use alternative you know biomass is there is there ways that we can retain uh, some kit that they've got that probably is fit for purpose now. Okay, it may not be the most efficient kit, but can we can we retain that, which in turn would lower the embodied carbon for a given project, um, which I think is key, which is a key driver for a lot of the clients that, that we're speaking to. And combining technologies, like we see it in the transport market, you know, everybody hasn't jumped into an electric vehicle. Exactly. There's a big market for hybrids. I'm plugging hybrids and lots of other variations on the journey towards everyone using more sustainable transport in buildings. It doesn't make sense to throw away a perfectly good operational asset, whether that is a boiler or something else, but maybe you can add a heat pump to it. You can start to move on that journey. As you said, Mike, if you are doing some fabric improvements or something else, you can start to get the best out of different bits of technology and on that trajectory towards where we've got to be by 2050. Yeah, I think that's the difficulty though. Like we mentioned around cars, versus the construction industry or the building, the built environment is that, you know, cars will typically last 12 years, 200,000 miles, and then the whole thing goes and gets demolished. And you could bring in a new setting. With buildings, they're built to last 60 years. You know, a lot of buildings, if you bought your house, you wouldn't expect it to last 60 years. You want it to last, you know, 100, 200 years. So buildings have got to try to be designed and, and constructed now that will cater for all the changes that are going to happen over such a long period of time. And sometimes doing those retrofit interventions, some some of the buildings we're looking in, um, you know, old listed buildings, you know, some of the technologies and stuff we want to put in there and get around the buildings, it's, it's quite a challenge. Yeah, there's there's that stat, isn't there? Eighty percent of our building stock that exists today will exist when we get to 2050. So it's yeah. a very point. I've got I've got stat. You know, I've got always got stats. You've always got, always got, 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 got stats. Got stats. In the corner. So what have we got there? So um, seventy-two percent of all gas consumption in the UK is consumed by buildings that are over a thousand square meters. So what we're saying basically is big buildings are using a disproportionate amount of energy and fossil fuels and therefore bigger buildings are the easy place to start yeah. to make the business case that you guys were talking about stack up mm -hmm. because you can get a bigger saving, a bigger reduction and a bigger improvement. And when you team that in with policymakers, legislation, we were talking about MEES, things like that, that's why I think it's going to attack bigger buildings first although there are more smaller buildings you'll get kind of a bigger impact going for the for the smaller number of big buildings that you can um, that you can target 
just want to, um, Chris, I'll pick up on that thread in just a minute, but just go back to Paul, what you said. I think I've written down here that there needs to be a common language. You know, there needs to be, from, from your perspective, when you talk to a client, you said they're asking for things in seven different ways that are trying to get to the same outcome. And I think actually we're really guilty in sustainability as a sort of whole that we, we sound off in this echo chamber that we're expecting people to know exactly what we're talking about. There's probably a few acronyms that we've said on this podcast alone, making assumptions that people know what Mies is, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there's um, one, a real need for almost like a dictionary, you know, for our clients to, to, to refer to and go, okay, what is a net zero building? What is a low carbon? What is carbon neutrality versus so on and so forth? So I don't really know where I'm actually going with that other than the fact that it's, we need a common language. But to revert back to, to your point, Chris, I think when you're talking about the, the building stock, from your perspective, you, know, you, you tend to get involved fairly early stages. So you want to get involved at early stages. What's the difference in conversation that you're having in comparison to the conversations that the gents around the table are, are having? Well, the, the beauty about getting involved in a project early stages is everything's still on the table. Mm. You know, the, every option is still available. The further you go down that process, the ability to, to make a different decision is much more difficult and usually much more costly. Um, so, yeah, we try and get involved as early as we can. Um, and, you know, you said before about collaboration and transparency and just put options on the table. Um, I've, I've heard the phrase used in the industry quite a lot of optioneering, yeah. which is, is quite a good way of putting it. Mm laying things out on the table. This is going to be really good for your operational energy performance, but it might not be good for your embodied carbon. This is going to be really good for your embodied carbon, but slightly less efficient. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this hybrid solution of a boiler and a heat pump is going to give you maybe a little bit of both, but you need to have a plan to be getting rid of that in the future, team that up with some other measures. So early we get involved, the more options we've got on the table. Um, but in terms of how clients take that on board mm. it, it's, we're still in a, a phase where people look for return on investment um, they're still looking for well what am I going to get out of it because we said before that consultation about Mies ha hasn't kicked in yet so there is no you know everybody talks about EPCB by 2030 but it's not actually legislated yet mm. um, people are talking about EPCC by 2027 that's not actually legislated yet mm. neighbours we mentioned before yeah, great, but it's not a requirement. It's purely optional. Mm -hmm. So I think there's um, there's a reluctancy for a lot of clients to take a plunge and go really heavy into um, decarbonisation and retrofit when, well, the landscape could quite easily change. Maybe they don't need to do it for a few years. Maybe they need to do it really quickly. Maybe they need to, I don't know, there could be a feeding tariff come back in for different technology or there could yeah. be some incentive provided in a, in a different area which would have made the decision much more return on investment friendly so we're in this kind of weird limbo i think at the moment and, and to your point and there was one of the discussions we had yesterday when you're putting a business case and trying to demonstrate the upside to future proofing your your asset by doing measures and interventions but we but also equally important is what would the consequences be if you did nothing and clarifying what that would be yeah. and then that perhaps would drive then more decisions or um, something to the boardroom and and, 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 and act and get, get, the, get something moving from that point of view. Yeah, that's the intangible bit at the moment. Yes. Everyone can see the benefit if you do do it, but what if you don't? What's the consequence? What, you know, how are you going to get burned if you don't do it? And the majority of the buildings... Are, are doing nothing. They're in that space at the moment. They're waiting to see what the consequences are. Well, surely the invoice from planet Earth is going to be a lot greater yes. than, than not doing it. So you'd rather pay that check now than be staring down the barrel. I, I would say, sorry, to come. I was just going to say, I also think it's like a generational thing, like a new talent coming into the industry who's mm. demanding more and more of greener buildings. They want to work for greener companies. So as that transition happens, um, there's going to be a drive, and as those people then move into the roles that make those decisions about what they do in their building. So over the time, that generational thing will just push this along as well. You know, it will just take a it's, you know a drive of its own. So being ISG, you know, and setting up this uh, new business unit and talking about exactly that, you know, attracting new talent, are you seeing a big influx in in sort of 
the next generation coming forward with, with new ideas and coming to the table and going, yeah, well, I'm, not, I'm not joining the business if, unless your sustainable credentials are aligned and unless you're working in this this space and this field. Well, from, from my point of view, there's like two of the people that um, have joined our team yeah. um, have come because they've reached out to us and seen what we're doing. And they've been really interested in, you know, the aspect of low carbon retrofit, how we're helping clients, you know, get green and up get buildings greener mm. so definitely 100 percent. you know that's that's that and i've worked in the industry 23 years and i've never had people just reach out to me and say oh, i really like what you're doing paul can i come and work for you they just want a job whereas these guys are just specifically reaching out because of what we're doing so it's definitely attracting people in it, and it will continue to attract people in um you know which i think is a great thing you know absolutely that being said there's a lot of positives that can be drawn from where we're currently at in the industry and uh, where the built environment is sort of heading. I think the collaboration piece, uh, we talk about UK Green Building Council, we talk about the Supply Chain Sustainability School. There's a lot of guidance coming out, in, out of the industry that is actually really, really positive. Brad, I want to touch on, I mentioned earlier, you know, the building physics side of things. And what what are the positives that are coming out of this space, especially retrofit from, from your perspective? Um, well, it's it's thinking outside the box. It's looking at things in a different way. Um, I think generally, um, you know, the guys that are designing buildings, designing solutions, have gone through um, you know a university pathway of building surface engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering. Well, actually, we're seeing um, to pick up on Paul's mm. point, um, the type of of guys that are coming to us have maybe got a, a different educational background, such mm. as geology. Um, can we look at different solutions you know boreholes for instance you know we, we was looking at a site um the other day the potential for wind turbines you know the, the considerations the enabling works to go with those kind of mm. solutions is completely out of the ordinary of what we would expect as a, you know in london in, in yeah. fit out yeah. um and that and that really is the exciting thing is it's um it's going against the norm we've, we've got to go against the norm to try and come up with innovative ways that will work yeah you know and therein lies opportunities as well right it's, absolutely it's really yeah absolutely space. i think um, i know we've discussed um certainly um recycling and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that and um, a real great example of a project that um that isg have done really well is is entopia building in cambridge mm -hmm. um which um for anyone listening i'd suggest they check out is, mm -hmm. is a is a great example of a good retrofit um there's a lot of um, lot of kit that has been reused. Mm -hmm. um, some lighting, for instance, that come from a Cate project mm -hmm. was then no longer required. Um, we worked closely with a, a lighting manufacturer who who was able to to take those back, repurpose them. I mean, the example of the lighting was they were they were lights that were designed for a ceiling grid. Mm -hmm. The the design intent over it is over there is no ceiling, uh, which I, I think the emphasis over there is less is more. Um, so the lighting manufacturer was able to take those lights, uh, repurpose them in a way that they could be hung mm -hmm. with griffle wire um, direct into the slab. So, again, thinking outside the box is, um, and again, an example actually this week um, uh, internally is I sent a message around to mm -hmm. my colleagues in technical services and saying, is, has anyone got any 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 kit, any VRF kit? Mm -hmm. um, Daikin, Mitsi, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Mitsubishi, exactly. We're not um, paying them. <laughs> Uh, that uh, you know is is good. You know, it's, yeah. it's coming out. That you know, could we could we have a look at that? Could we reuse it? Because yeah. um, clients are, are interested in that. And um, and yeah, again, staying within Topa, it's not just building services. You know, we, there's the floor tiles over there. Yeah, they're they're reused. So if we can can try and look at things in that way differently, we are reducing carbon because mm. nothing's going to landfill. We're we're repurposing it. We're making it better, and we're putting it somewhere else where it's going to work. That so you look at you know the, the the demands and requirements of the building and you sort of step back and you think the circular economy emphasis is that your sort of first approach do you look at how we can use the recycled equipment you know where do you go from when you you get the tender dock slid across your desk desk brad where do you go you know what, what's your starting point to go okay this needs to be um a line in the sand from a sustainable building like like in Topia in Cambridge. I appreciate it's a pretty difficult yeah, question. Yeah. I think well no, it's it's actually again it's um it's a change in mindset and behaviour. Yeah. To actually think about that from the start. Yeah. That may not be an easy option, but it could be the right option. Yeah. You know, and uh I suppose in an industry it's something that we've all got to 
try and get on board with. Uh, we mentioned cooperation, collaboration. We need to collaborate more. Yeah. You know, with you know, with potentially you know other companies that you know compete alongside us. Mm-hmm. Um, just collaborate and. For instance, the cat A, the cat yeah. A, cat B is is a common issue that everyone talks about. Sure. You know, the, there's a cat A that's been installed, and then the cat B comes along. Yeah. Can we all collaborate on that kit from cat A? Yeah. Can it be reused somewhere? I'm sure it can. Mm. Ceilings, flooring, M and E services, you name it. Um, that's yeah. So it's a change in mindset, I suppose, is 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 the right way to, to talk about. It. Paul, you're desperate to chip in here. Yeah, I was just, all I was going to say is on on that circular economy piece. He, the most important thing is that, like Brad said, it's considered at day one because we've been involved in projects where we've come in later on the design process and then we've got some real innovative ideas of what, what could be reused, but we're already too far down the line. And then some, sometimes you can roll that back, but that just that called, puts pressure on the project. It, it obviously puts pressure on time. Um, sometimes it costs money because other things have been ordered. So it's really about, you know, as an industry, we need to be doing that at stage zero. Clients oh, might be comment on, before, on board, yeah. Exactly, yeah. The earlier you're on board, the more options are still on the table. Exactly. And I think that's the difficulty that the industry's got at the minute is that consultants do a great job and they think about these things, but they don't have access to that material yeah. pool, that material library. Um, and one of the things we do have as contractors, and that's not just ISG, that's that's every contractor out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, we, we're, in, we're in buildings all the time taking things out. Um, so we kind of need to work together to generate that library of materials that then the industry can then look at and reuse. Mike, I'm, I'm going to come to you for this one. And it's a, more of a, a statement, perhaps. Low carbon is not low cost. Where do, where do you find yourself when, you know, when I say that phrase? Because it's often a conversation that we have with, with our clients, you know, when we're proposing um, a potential proposal. You know, and, and they turn around and, and they're sort of flabbergasted by the by the number of zeros potentially at the end of end of that. Um, where do you sit on on that front? Is that a true statement? Are you finding that is it? Does it matter, or is it the overarching? We need to be net zero by X, Y, and Z. It doesn't matter how much well, it costs. I think we should all be honest with ourselves. But that's not to say that it isn't possible. Uh, so there's many many examples where many businesses and clients have dedicated. Uh, low carbon decarbonization budgets aside, they are looking ahead to future proof their assets. Um, and there's lots of vehicles out there to uh, raise decarbonization funding from the government, etc. So that and there's a lot of investment coming through green investment as well. So it's the, the, there's a huge amount of support and help to get to get us to net zero. It's just advising people and helping them where to find that. Um, Paul, you were going to come in on something there? Yeah, I was, all I was going to say is, is to me, it's about, um, you know, again, a, ch- a slight change in mindset potentially, because if we're going to be generally low carbon, I think you've got to standardise a lot things a lot more yeah. and then push push more standard products out because they could be produced at a lower carbon because if you're going through a factory process where you're not doing bespoke um, goods, so that's, um, you know, an area where... Um, yeah, we spoke about this with modular type design of product where instead of having one bespokely designed piece of equipment to do one job, you have multiple smaller bits of kit that bolt together, and then the, there's the argument about could they be moved to another project? Yeah. You know, if you've got one building that needs, I don't know, 500 kilowatts of, of cooling capacity, um, and then you've got another building that needs 1,000 kilowatts of cooling capacity, you could effectively use the same modules, move mm-hmm. them from building to building. If there was Cat A, Cat B fit out, you could add some more, you could remove some. <clears throat> so there's definitely some advantages in that type of uh, concept. Yeah, I guess the, the uh, you know, I'd say I talk for like the, there's no designers in the room because they would obviously argue that would make, you know, our world a bit vanilla if everything's the same, which I understand. But again, it's about being innovative with the way that we, we approach design. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 there's no easy answer, but it really is, as, as like you mentioned earlier, the, the, the cost to the planet in the long run is, yeah. is a lot bigger yeah. Than, yeah. than any cost that any client's going to put up, you know, today. So, you know, the reality is it's... It, you know, it's about knowledge. It's about understanding where they can get help, funding, um, and then about us as a as an industry. And again, if you think about it, the more low carbon projects that happen, the more um, low carbon um, products that are purchased, mm-hmm. that will drive scale and that will drive prices down. So that will yeah. that will itself generate you know more value. But of course, when you're the first mover on something, the first person to set up a the neighbour's five star building in the UK, they're going to spend a bit of money to get there. But ultimately, over time, that will that will decrease in 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 cost because 
more people will be doing it. Brad, you want to um, just in? yeah, literally what we were just talking about regarding circular economy. I think that's a way that it does reduce in cost. Yeah. Um, if there is the opportunity to reuse um, a lot of kit or a lot of materials, that should be cheaper than what it is brand new. Mm-hmm. So again, I think that's, I suppose, what can we do to make um, low carbon more cost effective is mm-hmm. collaborate. Yeah. That's, that's probably the main point. Absolutely. So in the interest of collaboration and partnership, we don't usually do this on the Ask Me podcast, but I'm <laughs> going to hand over the reins to, to, to one of you gents. And if you want to ask us any questions, Mitsubishi's perspective, you know, this is a partnership. This is a collaborative sort of space as we drive change. What do you need from us? Well, if we, if we said to you, could you... Be nice. <laughs> we, we, we want you to take back kit, repurpose yeah. it and send it back to site so we can reinstall it. Like, yeah. what's, what's your appetite with that as a business? Yeah, it's an um, interesting question. And when I asked you earlier about when you open your emails and what the big question is, that's the big question in my emails at the moment is our recycling program. And actually, we, we were early adopters of this. You know, seven or eight years ago, I'm looking at you, Chris, as I'm sure that it was seven or eight years ago. It feels we, like long ago. Yeah, yeah. we um, partnered with a company called Envirocom. And essentially, they're, they're still in place today as, as a partnership with Mitsubishi Electric. And they're willing to come to site and take back kit as long as it's at ground level, um, free of charge in terms of the recycling. They'll only charge for the actual transportation. They'll take it to one of their sites. They've got a site in East Midlands and West Midlands, and they will put the respective uh, material down the correct recycling line and nothing will go to landfill. I must caveat that with the refrigerant is incinerated on site and uh, part of that heat will, will be recovered. But... There's actually, um, there hasn't been an appetite for that. And honestly, it's, it's, it's only been the last couple of weeks. My emails have been chock-a-boxed with what's your recycling scheme. So it's there. But that's recycling. Um, yeah. What about reuse? Reuse. You know, actually not just taking products and, yeah, re, you know, making recycling yeah. metal and stuff. Yeah. Sure it doesn't go to landfill, but reusing products. Like where is the appetite? Or does it just not work in your in your game? Well, it's, it, it's difficult to give you a straight answer because... There hasn't been the appetite for that so far. We're seeing the appetite grow. People are asking that question. Um, you know, we make a product, we supply that product to, you know, to a contractor or to somebody for them to use. Um, if that product requires replacement parts, for example, a component is damaged or, or worn out, we obviously offer spare parts. We make sure that we hold spare parts usually for a minimum of 10 years after we stop making the product so that you can kind of make sure that product's got a long, you know, a long lifespan once it's in operation. With regards to sending it back to us as a manufacturer to rework it and reissue it, and there's maybe more of a question there about working with a contractor who's going to do the reinstallation of the product. So rather than shipping it back to Mitsubishi Electric, for example, to do work on it and send it back, working collaboratively with a contractor who's going to reinstall it and, I don't know, vetting the quality of repairs that they do to the product or providing some kind of a health check on the product once it's you know it's been repaired or it's been transported to a different site, providing some kind of commissioning support to make sure that when it's put back into operation, it's within all of the operational windows and tolerances that it should be. And mm. um, if we got to a point where we're seeing lots and lots of people saying, "Here, have have your box back and you know put it back on the shelf and then resell it to a different contractor," that might be a different conversation. But that hasn't really happened yet. Just just to chip in on that. When I spoke to Envirocom, they uh, grade the stock. So sometimes they're taking away kit that has barely been used. So they will grade the stock, I don't know in which fashion, I assume sort of A, B, C. Um, and then they're recycling it and selling it back on. But from their perspective, again, and I'm sort of speaking on their behalf here, but they haven't had an, a huge uptake in that. Mike, you've got your hand up to chip in here. So. Yeah, well, it's just, I think another question I've probably got for, for you guys is it's probably more on the plant selection, plant sizing. So obviously in post-COVID, there is a there's a variance in occupancy levels in yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays and the Mondays. So, but the plant's still running full full blast on the Mondays and the Fridays. And the kind of that scenario for, is there a scenario out there with what you guys have got for low occupancy, low demand, and, and adjusting the plant and selecting that for those scenarios, because that's going to be with us for quite some time, I think. Yeah. And, and the other one linked to that is right-sizing plant selection. 
rather than the 10 to 50% conventionally. Do you have a, a view on that? Because uh, we to, to get that plant sized correctly is, is vital, isn't it? To get consumption down and, and carbon, et cetera. No, you're right, Mike. The, the two clear sort of points there. Um, with regards to equipment's ability to deliver variable capacity, that's something that's been around for quite a while. Um, you know, back in sort of 2011, I think it was, when the Energy Related Product Directive came out, which started to force minimum efficiencies for, for products. That started to make manufacturers uh, produce performance at specific um, percentages of load. Um, much more stringent than what Part L of the building regulations was asking us to do, and therefore equipment had to be very good at operating at part load, uh, had to hit certain minimum efficiency standards, and and they've been ramped up over over the years. So I think it's very difficult to find products now that aren't able to deliver different yes. capacities. Um, most products operate more efficiently at part load than they do at full load, and therefore you know there's an advantage in a way. When you, when you are operating a part load. Um, so that is just an element that does feed into your other question about size in the plan. And um, specifically in the retrofit area, I look at lots of projects where we're asked to come in and do, for want of a better phrase, a feasibility report about what might be possible to do. What, what could be replaced? What could we propose? What could we offer? And the lack of data of the existing building means that you're forced to match the capacity of the existing system. No one really knows what the cooling load in the building is. It might have had various bits of retrofit done to it over the years. No one really knows what the heat loss of the building was because, again, it's had new windows or it's had changes in internal structures and things like that. So you end up matching what was already in. That is probably an area where I've been saying to clients, you're actually better off going back to square one and almost using the building physics engineers that you were talking about before, Brad, to actually recalculate what's required, not just assume that what's already in is what's already in. And to give you a practical example, I looked at a project a couple of months ago, uh, about 2.4 megawatt of gas boiler was installed. Mm. Luckily, this client had operational data mm. of gas consumption, and um, as in hour-by-hour hour data. And mm -hmm. um, We looked back at the data, and out of the 2.4 megawatts of capacity, even on the worst-case ambient day at startup at like five o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. the biggest capacity that the, the plant had ever delivered mm -hmm. was just over one megawatt so it was over double the size now that was only over a three or four year set of data that they had and that kind of probably ties nicely into if you look at the holistic approach to the building and you look at the landlord and the tenants so uh, there needs to be a culture change on expectations on comfort and a real change on that, where we're not going to expect the temperatures where, or the conditions we were used to for the last ten years, mm -hmm. we have to be flexible in that. And once that's once that's identified, then they, we go back to the plant selection can then be reduced even lower, can't it? And yeah. then you're into the place where you're into tenants, league tables, performance, etc. And they were going in the right direction. Does that make sense? Well, one one point that's interesting about this is that. Historically, you know, take cooling for example, we've typically designed cooling systems based on a 35 degree external ambient temperature. Depending on where you are in the UK, we've typically designed heating systems around about minus four, minus five degree external ambient temperature. We're seeing more extreme weather events now. I mean, look at last year in London, it was what, 41 degrees I think it got to last year. Um, I, mean, I live up in, near Liverpool, we saw minus 11, um, minus 17 in some parts of the country. So weirdly we might find ourselves going backwards because the climate is changing having to pick equipment that's bigger yes for those extreme temperatures unless as you said my clients and building occupiers and owners accept that well if that happens for four hours of the year 10 hours of the year do i really need a plant that is 20 percent bigger yes. that's taking up more plant space more cost means that it's not necessarily operating as efficiently as you'd like it to when it's yeah. running for the other 95% of the year. So th there's definitely two sides to that. Coin. What you're saying, Chris, is buy a thicker coat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Joking aside, we're already seeing that in, in, in Europe, right? There's, uh, I think in Spain or France have said that- There's quite a few European that, countries, yeah. yeah. That you can't have the air conditioning at X it's amount. 27 degrees in any public space is, is the, um, the, the requirement to try and save energy. Yeah. You know, there is no need 
to have a publicly occupied space cooled yeah. below 27 degrees. And that, that's been forced by government um, onto building owners and um, you know, equipment users. We obviously haven't got that in the UK at the moment. So flipping the, the conversation around to what we were talking about before with clients, it's gonna require a client to accept that they may have something, I hate to use the word worse, but less comfortable than they are used to having. And it's, they're going to have to pay for it. So that's quite a difficult sell, but yet... Well, it's that old adage, that comfort's going to become a commodity, isn't it, really? Or a luxury. Yeah. Comfort. And that, that needs to change that culture and the behaviours. And once we get that change, then we are going in the right direction. It's going to help significantly, I think. It's going to change the yeah. way that we innovate as well, I think. You know, the, the, we are there to provide comfort, whether that's in, in cooling or heating. And I think that the way that we will innovate um, will change to, to meet those demands. Um, you know, we're always battling as to the next product innovation. Do we reduce the size of the kit whilst improving the efficiency? Do we are we changing the, the refrigerant? No, there's always a, something has to give is what I'm trying to get to. And it's um, at the moment we, we sort of want everything, but don't want to give up anything so it's, it's a real tough battle when it comes to uh, the innovation side of, of heat pump technology yeah unlimited comfort yeah is something that we're going to have to move away from <clears throat> and if it you know if it is 35 degree outside or it is 41 degree outside mm. then it, it we need to move away from expecting that we can have 20 degrees or 21 degrees in in our internal space if we want it especially if we're trying to get to the lower energy consumption figures that we're all talking about, especially with things like neighbours and EPC ratings. It's just that those two things are going to be incompatible. Any other questions from you gents in regards to what, you know, what we need to do as a manufacturer? Um, yeah, I've got one. You, you guys may already be doing it. Um, a chat yesterday we had with our sustainability team is interested in, in the whole life cycle of the project. Um, deliveries, for example. Um, I've seen it plenty of times. You get the you know the cardboard boxes that the the condensers or whatever come in go into the recycling. But is is there a situation where you guys might be looking at a, a method of a delivery to site where it's a you know maybe a box, a purpose built box that literally is flat packed, and the guy takes it back with him, and it can be used straight away onto the next one instead of it going through a recycling process. So it's like looking at ways to try and go even further mm. with the the sort of reusable, low carbon, you see where I'm coming from? There was a, a particular company, I've mentioned a name on it, a lighter manufacturer who um, we spoke with who, who had this solution where they, they had the, the lights delivered in a, like they called it a coffin, actually, um, a wooden coffin that then was flat packed mm. and the guy took it back with him to the warehouse. Is that something you think you guys would look at? I think to try and answer that question, and I haven't got a straight answer, yeah. <laughs> by the way, um, the Obviously, we manufacture products all across the world, um, you know, right the way uh, from Japan, Turkey, uh, into Asia, and obviously up in Scotland as well. Um, so it's difficult sometimes when you guys are buying a system from us with multiple things. They might have actually come from multiple different factories. Um, obviously, we've got to make sure that they arrive in pristine condition, so, you know, they're, they're packaged pretty well. In terms of taking that packaging back to the factory that produced the product, I suppose there's some maths to do there about the uh, the amount of carbon that might be generated in transport in that packaging back to the original production factory in order to reuse the packaging versus the fact that in the country the product that was delivered to, so in our example the UK, there's already a recycling facility locally which can actually recycle that packaging in a more you know carbon effective way than shipping it back to source. I haven't done the maths on that. I don't know. Um, we'd have to look into these type of things but it's that sort of innovation that we need questions asked of us yeah. to force us to, to go and do the maths and start looking at this but there are a lot of unintended consequences sometimes when you yeah. you look deeper into this and we've tried really hard as a manufacturer to to be honest and put the reality of, of you know what goes on behind the curtain effectively so that you guys can see what situation we're in and where we're at yeah. it doesn't always give you the answer you're looking for though unfortunately mm -hmm. It's a bit of a, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. And the guy who'd probably be best placed to answer that question, head of sustainability, Martin Fahey, who's often on the on, on the Ask Me podcast, 
he was booted off today because there's too many in the room. But <laughs> I'm sure he would have been given you a, a, a better answer. But it's something that we're definitely working on. There's aspects within our packaging that we are looking to improve, absolutely. But I'm glad I'm sat on this side of the mic. I think I prefer it over here. Well, I would say, though, just just to be clear, and because and, uh, I'm happy to say this on record, is that from what I've seen so far, you guys are doing the best on EPDs. Um, you know, given the data that, you know, for us to use... Um, when calculating these these kind of carbon metrics, and uh, mm -hmm. I have to applaud that, to be honest with you. So fair play, because I feel that you guys are miles ahead of of maybe some others. We've put a lot of work and effort into uh, transparency of data, because um, we took the approach that at the moment we're not in an arms race with this sort of information. It's not ours is better than yours, ours is lower than theirs. It's actually all about do you even have a number? Have you even got a figure? because we're just trying to work it out. So yeah, we have put a lot of work into putting the details out. We've done a lot of SIBSI's TM65 calculations for the products. That was a real help for us, that, uh, that paper that came out last year, because it just gave a methodology, a yeah. fairly straightforward methodology. EPDs, uh, you know, we're moving forward. We're trying to do more EPDs, but they're even more complicated than trying to do uh, something like a, a TM65 calculation. And for us, with the amount of products that we've got, and the frequency at which we're updating the products for exactly all of the reasons that you guys have been highlighting, it's really difficult to keep on top of, uh, of that. I think the way that we do business in future will be when a product is released, it will come with all of that certification and everything alongside it, but that requires the market to drive it more. Mm. Um, do, you, do you think that should be mandated like from the government level to say that all products need to have it? Uh, well, it's really interesting. I think we've talked about this on another podcast actually the um the carbon buildings bill was put in front of of government um last year uh, yeah i think it was around no, about february this year actually tell a lie and the government in my opinion i agree with them they they said that there simply isn't the the standardized calculation methodology across the world um not just in the uk because if we come up with our own standardized calculation methodology for how we're going to do it and another country comes up with a different methodology, and as a result, their products from you know manufactured in another another country look more attractive to try and reduce embodied carbon. Then it could inadvertently skew the market, and that's another example of an unintended consequence. So, I think the government are quite right to think long and hard before they legislate in this area, um, but that doesn't stop them asking for data now, asking for transparency now, so that they're in a better position to legislate. So I think it would be really good if there was a mandatory requirement to publish data. We've seen that in Europe, so with um, in France with the Eco Passport, for example. Um, you know, we're starting to see it in um, in London, City of London. Um, Corporation are asking for whole life carbon calculations. The GLA are asking for uh, any referable project to have a uh, whole life carbon calculation done alongside it. And the more that happens across the UK the more data we're going to have and the better position we'll be in to, to start uh, making some legislative decisions around it. Nicely put. Well, Mike, Paul, Brad, Chris, thanks very much for your time today. It's been really, really interesting from my perspective. I hope you listeners have enjoyed it too. I'll kindly ask that you subscribe, comment, like, share, all the good stuff and um, look forward to catching up and working with you again in the near future, gents. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.